structure is, is there for the actor. It's not there for the audience. Oh, I love that. It's there to, to inform the image. I mean, it tells you what the action is. Shakespeare is so good with giving you the action. And, and that's what you have to kind of like extract from structure. Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we are pleased to have Lee Nishri Howitt. Lee is a Boston-based voice, text, dialect, and acting coach. Born and raised in Israel, Lee moved to New York to study musical theater at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy. And then he went to the American Repertory Theater Institute of Advanced Theater Training at Harvard University. Lee has taught voice and Shakespeare at Harvard, the Ludwig Solsky Academy of the Dramatic Arts, and the American Studio of the Moscow Art Theater School. And he has coached shows for notable directors including Malia Bensonson, Bill Rausch, Adolf Shapiro, Scott Ziegler, and Wojciech Klem. Welcome, Lee. Thank you. Good to be here. As a side personal note, I'll say Lee took a class of mine at the American Musical and Dramatic Academy, and it's at that point where where he really fell in love with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Especially since we didn't do any Shakespeare together, I believe. <laughs> no, we did not. <laughs> though, though, though in your warm-up, we did do Now is the Winter of Our Discontent. We did. So, Lee, you were born and raised in Israel. And I was. Did you grow up speaking English, or did you grow up speaking Hebrew? Well, my first language is Hebrew, but uh, being a nerd, I watched a whole lot of TV and read a lot of books that were in English when I was younger. So actually, by the time I was about 14, I would say that I was practically fluent. I keep saying that Jerry Seinfeld was my first English teacher. <laughs> um, so when I moved to the U.S., I was fluent. My English was was very good. But it wasn't until AMDA, actually, that I got into, like, voice. And I've read Shakespeare before I got to AMDA, but very little in Hebrew. And I can't say that I, I can't say that I understood much of it, because even in Hebrew, it's difficult. So it, it wasn't a super particularly hard challenge once you decided to dive into Shakespeare for you as an English as a second language speaker? I think there is another level. I mean, again, Shakespeare is, is a challenge enough for native speakers. And I think actually that having another language, using another language or being proficient in another language cues you in a little more about how you use language and how you use imagery. And it's just another another dimension. I can't say, oh, you have to have another language. You understand language so much better. No, but I think it, it did give something extra. So when I did approach it, it wasn't blindly. I know sometimes English speakers take certain English things for granted. And as a bilingual person, perhaps you don't do that as much. And especially when you approach colloquialisms or things that, that some, someone might take for granted in language, like how you use certain word as part of a saying that just a, a native speaker would not think twice about using a certain saying in in a modern sense, although it came from somewhere a little more literal in the past. Now, you work on dialects, is that true? I do. I uh, I coach dialects. Well, I, I do s- several things. I teach dialects for the stage, and I also work with people who want to uh, reduce some of their dialects, actually the same way that I did at AMDA. I, I took every extra voice class I could, uh, voice and speech review that they had, and some extra time they offered, especially international students. And so I, yes, I do also work for non-native speakers to achieve more clarity in speech. And I remember a post recently that you said you were tired of doing Israeli dialects. <laughs> <laughs> Given where I'm from, it's it's usually what I what I'm asked to do right. since I I know it very well. Now there are so many plays, even on Broadway, that require it. From Oslo last year, that won the Tony for Best Play, and now there's the Band's Visit, that is a new musical. Then the all all of a sudden, an Israeli dialect is in vogue. So thank you, Gal Gadot, uh, for 
putting us out there. It, it's like it's also the one dialect that they they always ask me to demonstrate. Oh, like oh, you don't sound like you're from from Israel. And I was like, listen, if you want me to turn the Israeli accent on, it's really really simple to just put to, to just start talking like this. I just uh, prefer not to. <laughs> so when an actor approaches a dialect. What is the biggest mm-hmm. struggle that they have? I would say they're focusing on individual sounds. Like, oh, I can't do this particular sound. Or like, or I even heard people say, oh, I don't have an accent except for my R's. That's the one sound that gives me away. And I was like, mm, that's not quite true. <laughs> it's a lot about the musicality of a dialect. People who speak a certain dialect aren't necessarily consistent with their own dialect. They say things differently. I now live in Boston and... Native Bostonians sometimes will call their city Boston, and sometimes they'll call it Boston. But native speakers in a certain dialect aren't necessarily consistent in, in, in terms of specific sound. But the music of, the music of a dialect, the, the groove of a dialect, like their rhythms, how they emphasize words, the, the feel of it, is very unique to every dialect. And that's something that is a little harder to grasp. Some people will have an easier time, especially people who are particularly musical, have a good musical ear, which again is also true for Shakespeare. Musical theater people do Shakespeare very well because they have, they're more attuned to rhythm. Right, and the musicality, right. Exactly. So, so it's the same thing with the dialect. Whether you're, you're speaking jazz or you're speaking classical music or you're singing pop, it's like, what is the groove? I think that's a, like a really interesting point because, you know, Shakespeare has a rhythm, has a groove, Mm-hmm. And I don't really quite know how one would teach that. I think it's just about learning. It's about studying the structure because it's all in the structure. It's like we teach how to notice alliteration and we teach how to notice assonance. I mean, I don't think there's any person that teaches Shakespeare that, that doesn't work on structure and teaches like how to notice when he's moving from short vowels to long vowels, to notice when there's a change in, in, in the pentameter. We all learn that and we all teach that. But I think that for the most part, the way students take it is it's like, okay, I did it, but now what? Right. It becomes homework rather than, oh, how does this inform the, the image? How does this inform the action? What is the meaning of a change in, in rhythm? What is the meaning of, of an emphabrach? I don't use the term in feminine ending anymore. I think it's, we, we need to let go of that, that term, in my opinion. And I know it's, that I'm not going to be like the one that changes the world in that. But I personally started start using the term emphabrach. So they, they, they see a structure. And they kind of do the homework, but they don't dive in. It's like, so how does that change the musicality? When a singer would absolutely do that when he looks at a, a cheat music. What does the syncopation mean? What does it mean when a song goes from three quarters to, to four? When the phrases are short, when the phrases are long, when they move from one to the other. So let's go there. So when a singer is learning to sing, Mm -hmm. how do they learn that very thing that you're talking about? If you have enough theory, if you do understand how to read sheet music and understand the the changes, to understand how the connection between structure and, and, and lyric and find those changes. Adolf Shapiro, that I coached his show in Moscow, who's this brilliant Russian director, told us that acting is all about changes. If you look at a speech, it's like the beat changes are where the where, where everything happens. Mm-hmm. What causes change? What affects change? And what happens in that moment of change? I couldn't agree more. And that's how I, I try to look at Shakespearean text. There's no such thing as regular iambic. There's always changes. It's not just about, oh, but this one doesn't have any any amphibrax, or this one doesn't have any pyrrhic spondies. Well, yeah, but the image in it relates to the rhythm differently every time. The way the images are lying on top of the structure, and the way they're informed by it, is different in any speech. Now, it becomes more and more and more irregular the later in, the, in his career he wrote. I mean, 
if you look at Hamlet and compare it to Comedy of Errors or King John, it, the structure is so different. The way he uses structure becomes it becomes jazz. If he was writing more classical music before, he is moving into into something a lot freer and learning how to look at the structure and really dive down to it. What does it mean when when halfway through the banished speech, Juliet kind of lets go of the amphibrax? She starts with a ton of them. And then when she reaches the word banished, there are very few of them. What does it mean? Shall I speak ill of him that is my husband? He could have used a different word than husband there. But he gave you an extra, an extra beat. What does it do to you? What does it do to the image? What does it tell you about where Juliet is in that moment? And, and I think it just becomes, especially for younger students, it just becomes tasks. It becomes homework. Okay, I did it. I scanned the monologue. Now I can do what I was going to do anyway. Right. right. <laughs> so what difference does it make? Lee, I'm listening to you talk about the musicality of, of language and how musicality conveys meaning. When we talk about musicality in Shakespeare, our first go-to is, of course, rhythm, mm -hmm. because that's something that is so easy to analyze, relatively speaking. But melody and pitch are equally important. And when you talk about the way that melody conveys meaning, it may be similar to the way that melody and music links different musical ideas together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. For example, if you have a musical phrase that has a suspended note in the chord, your mind subconsciously is waiting for that chord to resolve. And so that is a way of linking two ideas together. The same may be true of certain rhetorical devices where, where the voice pitch actually signals that there is something more to come and it will be resolved when I link it with this other idea. Mm -hmm. And so the voice pitch and the cadence may change in particular ways. That I, I think it would be really interesting to dive into those. The thing is with various dialects, and again, we, we do Shakespeare in various dialects, that sometimes certain dialects don't use a ton of pitch range. I think that the way Shakespeare does it, those changes are in the language. Like, for example, in Macbeth, when you have like a line like, Will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand? No, this my hand would rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. So the, just his choice of words there, making the green one red, long, short, short. He kind of gave it, this is actually something I'm directly stealing from my Shakespeare teacher at ART, that I was incredibly fortunate to study under David Hammond, who's a brilliant Shakespeare teacher that works with, with ART, and he changed the way I looked at texts, not just Shakespeare. All this work that we do on Shakespeare completely and utterly applies to any sort of text, because the way we use language isn't different. Speaking of text, you'll be speaking a text from Othello. You've chosen... Iago's speech from Act 2, Scene 3. We set the stage for us. Tell us what, what's happened right before Iago speaks these words. And who, who is Iago? Maybe we should start there. <laughs> well, Iago is this lovely, lovely character in this, in this, in this light-hearted comedy who exacts his revenge on his commanding officer for, according to him, and, there were, and that's for the actor to decide if there's more to it, for not, not being given a position he felt entitled to. And feeling wronged, as he does, he plots his revenge, his 
cruel and inhumane revenge against Othello and uh, his wife Desdemona. And in this particular monologue, after he convinces Cassio to go to Desdemona, she's the way to go. She will help. She has to. She's the she's the best. Go to her. I know you're like he's a little drunk and a little uh, and very distraught, but she's the way to go. And Cassio, thank you, thank you, honest Iago. That's how everybody calls him throughout the play, honest, honest Iago. Which to me is the key to how to act him. He's completely honest. He's honest when he talks to the audience. He's honest when he talks to Cassio. If you don't play the honesty, you will play a villain. And that's the last thing you can do. Absolutely. The way to Othello's heart is through Desdemona. Exactly. Which is all part of his plan to convince Othello, of course, that Cassio and Desdemona are are sleeping together behind his back. And, and of course, stoking Othello's feelings of inferiority, being of a different race. It's... it's it's so painful to read this play. Yeah. And it's entirely a problematic play, I believe, I think, and especially in this day and age. And I think it takes a really, really sensitive director to approach this material while equally representing the racism and the misogyny. Because <laughs> I think sometimes one will come at the expense of the other. If you right. come out of this play feeling sorry for Othello, why isn't Desdemona on your mind? Right. Uh, and, and, <laughs> and if you come out of this play, think about Desdemona, the play is titled Othello. And so I think these two things have to be negotiated. I just think it takes a really, really sensitive director. This character, Iago, is a, a schemer, certainly, but a very tricky character for an actor because this character occupies a very special place in the rogues gallery of Shakespearean villains, Mm -hmm. doesn't he? I mean, uh, Iago and Richard III may be vying for the the distinction of most villainous of all the villains in the entire canon. Never, ever play the villain. Then you become not a person, you become a plot device. Yeah, you become a, become a caricature. I'm not saying that humans aren't capable of great acts of villainy, but I see good and evil or good and bad. It's like it's a platonic ideal true villainy right. uh, something people definitely aspire to but somewhere along the line there's a human being in there yeah i think right. there has to be otherwise why would i why would i like yago because we like yago we should i think we have to otherwise why would we sit through the play well i mean it, there's certainly precedent you know with richard iii in shakespeare but also that that's a character we see all the time hey why don't we try reading this and let's hear it sure so this is lee nishri howitt reading iago from othello act two scene three And what's he then that says I play the villain when this advice is free I give and honest, probable to thinking, and indeed the course to win the more again? For tis most easy the inclining Desdemona to subdue in any honest suit. She's framed as fruitful as the free elements. And then for her to win the more were to renounce his baptism, all seals and symbols of redeemed sin. His soul is so unfettered to her love that she may make, unmake, do what she list, even as her appetite shall play the god with his weak function. How am I then a villain to counsel Cassio to this parallel course directly to his good? Divinity of hell. When devils will the blackest sins put on, they do suggest at first with heavenly shows as I do now. For whilst this honest fool plies Desdemona to repair his fortune, and she for him pleads strongly to the moor, I'll pour this pestilence into his ear, that she repeals him for her body's lust, and by how much she strives to do him good, she shall undo her credit with the more. So will I turn her virtue into pitch, and out of her own goodness make the net that shall enmesh them all. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. My pleasure. He's such a fascinating character. There's so many decisions an actor has to make about him. Is this the one thing, like the not getting this position, the thing that drives him into, into this 
terrible course of action. Can we talk about the, the trickiest line? Because there are, there are a lot of tricky ones. It's but a great speech. For an actor, there's one that stands out to me as being really, really hard. And I'm curious, what, 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 what do you think is the hardest line? In this speech. Where the, the rhetoric becomes tricky is around, and then for her to win the more were to renounce his baptism, all seals and symbols of redeeming sin, his soul is so unfettered to her love that she may make. That's that's part of the, where the rhetoric gets a bit confusing, I feel. Oh, sure, because uh, how many that's how many lines without a full stop there? And just yeah. have to keep the ball in the air for... God, well, we could count. Five or six lines. For those of you that are following along, by the way, with the website, these are lines 335 through 361. And the part that we're looking at is starts at line 338 and goes one, two, three, four. And then there's a mid-stop there. Then it goes on for another one, two, three, four, five, <laughs> six, seven lines. Yeah. And you know what, what I think the answer is? throw punctuation out the window follow really the, that's uh, pretty fascinating what do you mean all these commas and half stops and full stops we don't know who put them put them there even if we look at the first folio it's like it most likely is a printer's choice we we can't tell which is like oh this is closer to how shakespeare meant for it to be it's like we can only follow the image we can only follow like make sense of the rhetoric and sometimes there are options like not looking at the at the commas or the stops they're for the eyes for the most part but this was written to be heard so like when you have macbeth again you have the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow so he has that line that could be read in a few ways. And actually, I like the way that, that doesn't usually get done. Uh, he has, she should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. And the, usually people go, there would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace. But there's an alternative. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace. So it kind of like you link the first tomorrow with the word word. Yeah, that would have been a time. Tomorrow would have been a time. But then he goes on to the what does it even mean tomorrow? And tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace. I, I think both make sense. And I think one serves the, the, the forward motion much more. So, so there are options sometimes. As long as you make sense of the rhetoric, the commas and the stops that are written, they're somebody's opinion. They're not necessarily Shakespeare's opinion. So then going back to line, th starting at line 341 or mm -hmm. 338, what would you do there? How would you keep the thought or the idea or the image moving forward? I would say, and then for her to win the more were to, were to renounce his baptism, all seals and symbols of redeemed sin. Here, I think it is the end of a thought. I have a comma written in my text here. I don't think it is. I think it goes on to a new thought. His soul is so unfettered to her love that she may make, unmake, do what she lists, even as her appetite shall play the god with his weak function. So you would put a period after redeemed sin? I think I would, if I were to notate it. Because I don't understand how the, the, the thoughts connect, if I would say, and then for her to, to win the more were to renounce his baptism, all seals and symbols of redeemed sin. His soul is so unfettered to her love. I don't see how they connect. I don't yeah. see how how this part of the thought, if I am connecting these thoughts, I don't see how that's the, the progression of it. Because he kind of takes, he kind of moves to a new subject. And it's something that I had to kind of figure out. Because again, we get it, we get a text and, and, and I know that we're instructed. I mean, there are people who tell, oh yeah, a comma is a half, like is a, a turn and a, and a full stop is like, is, is a stop in place. And we also, we walk the text sometimes. And then we, we sometimes work from uh, poetry line to poetry line and then punctuation to punctuation. And, and that's a good way to kind of physicalize a structure. But I don't think it quite does, I don't think it's enough. I think you have to look at the rhetoric and 
and and see if if I'm speaking whole images and if and the progression of thought we always have to lead with thought if the progression of thought makes sense then the structure helps with it just given the wide variety of punctuation that you can see from addition to addition it is somewhat of a subjective choice absolutely and there's room for I've, I've seen choices that didn't make make too much sense <laughs> my teacher david hammond told us a story about he about a production that he was coaching with a famous person in it that i'm not going to name and it was hamlet and he, he says that in the, the line that a lot of people get wrong like the line of course is alas poor yorick i knew him horatio and a lot of people add a well i knew him well well, that it's not in the text, and and apparently this actor was working on that particular speech, and he's and he warned people in advance. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna move the comma. I can do that. It's okay. It's like I'm gonna I'm gonna do it differently. And they're like, yeah, of course you can do however you make sense of it, and and apparently the choice of that actor was, alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, well, Horatio. <laughs> <laughs> So, so not every choice I, w- I would support, but if you can justify it in the text, in the most famous speech of all, to, to die, to sleep, to die, to sleep no more, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep. So that's, there's an inter- interpretation there. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep. That's, that's an option, and, and you can justify it, especially since the, 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 the rhetoric there like, is a repetition. He, he's repeating these words, and when you repeat something, it, it's no longer operative. The new idea is what become, becomes operative there. So, so there's, it's a decision whether it's a repetition for emphasis or a repetition for contrast. And that's where we're, we're understanding the rhetorical tropes and figures in the text becomes incredibly important. One of the problems that I see happening is structure over content or structure over image. The structure is there to help the image, to elevate the image, to help us use it, but it's not there for the structure. I, I don't want to hear anybody's pentameter when they speak Shakespeare. Mm. It, it's not there for that. Just like when, I, when a singer doesn't sing the rhythm of a song. Structure is there to free you. I mean, you have to know the exactly. structure and acknowledge the structure, but then it's there to free you once you've got that. It's like technique in acting. Exactly. And what I hear is like, oh, there's alliteration here. I, I really need to stress it. I was like, no. <laughs> You don't. So the sounds will take. So I can tell the pleasant prince this mock of his that turned his balls to gunstones from Henry V. Yeah, pleasant prince has alliteration on it, and it kind of tells us Harry's opinion of this pleasant prince, mm-hmm. and it draws attention to itself. That's for the actor. You don't have to go and tell the pleasant prince. That's unnecessary. Structure is, is there for the actor. It's not there for the audience. Oh, I love that. It's there to, to inform the image. I mean, it tells you what the action is. Shakespeare is so good with giving you the action, and, and that's what you have to kind of like extract from structure. A lot of times it becomes kind of like over-articulating Shakespeare, where if I'm very, very clear about every word that I'm saying, uh, the, the text somehow becomes clearer. It doesn't, because it actually pulls you away from the, from the action. Yeah. Garrett, I want to go back to you for a second, and I want to know what your most tricky line was. We talked about how difficult it is and the challenges of sort of keeping these balls in the air when you have sentences that run on for seven or eight lines and there are nested images and metaphor mm-hmm. upon metaphor. But then then we have this line 349 where it's maybe the shortest line in the speech. Well, certainly the shortest line in the speech. And everything seems to turn on these three words at the end of line 349. So I'm mm-hmm. curious about, about what is the action there? And could you read the line that we're speaking about? I don't have the lines numbered here. Oh. Is it divinity of hell? Yes. It is divinity <laughs> of hell. Yes. <laughs> 
the setup is maybe a few lines ahead when Iago says, how am I then a villain? Where he returns to his original question. Yeah, I think that's his whole argument. Hey, I'm doing good here. What? Am I wrong? And at this point, the audience is probably nodding right along with Iago, thinking, yeah, you know what? You're right. (laughs) What a a great guy. What a mensch. Yeah. How am I then a villain? What do you mean? Why are you scoffing at me? Why are you looking at me so disapprovingly? So he says, I'm doing a good thing. How am I then a villain? But then, in line 349, he finishes that question to counsel Cassius to his parallel course directly to his good end of a thought and then he says divinity of hell divinity of hell so what's yeah. happening there what what's that all about it's his uh, owning up i believe cuz he doesn't play games he's unmasking himself not with the audience well he's kind of like okay i know i'm not doing good i don't care it's his playing the villain that I, that's what he what i think he's doing he's playing the villain now and what's interesting to me about the speech is that it's it's rather like in terms of structure and scansion and all that good stuff It's pretty complicated before that, and it's pretty basic after that. Yeah, change of structure. Yeah, he has a lot of amphibrax. Villain, honest, fruitful, baptism. Yeah, they're all over the place, and then it goes away. Yeah, and then it becomes very, like, kind of like, okay, but now we're ending the thought at the end of the line. It's much more direct. People have a lot of opinions. They tell, oh, when there's a, when there's an extra syllable, it means the person is unsure of himself or they're lying. It's like, well, people don't really lie in Shakespeare, do they? If they do, they tell you they're about to. <laughs> they say what they mean and they mean what they say. They speak their mind. Um, they don't say one thing and mean another unless they give you fair warning that they're about to. And understandably so, because that would have been very confusing to an audience back in the day. It was like, oh, we have to make sure they get what's going on. That's why I'm going to kind of narrate what I do, just to make it clear for an audience that was new to this kind of theater. Because this theater was completely new at the time. The more I, I, I study Elizabethan culture and Elizabethan theater and Elizabethan history... The more it informs the text, the more I understand the mechanics of how they were operating, the more I I understand the action of the text, the deeper I'm able to go into it and to understand states of mind. Your understanding of that informs your work on the text. Absolutely. So, Lee, this is all, this is fascinating. Garrett, do you have more to ask Lee? No, I have more to listen with Lee. <laughs> I, I really, really enjoyed this interview, and, and it's been so illuminating for me. Lee, I guess if I have one question, where could I find some of the sources that are inspiring you? I know that David Hammond's work is brilliant, and I, he, he every now and then teaches in New York. He is working on a book right now that I can't wait to read. I think that the reading the right, the better sources of like more the the objective sources on Shakespeare, which is hard because there's so much tradition that has been established when it comes to Shakespeare that I think just usually takes us away from the text rather than bring us closer to it. When you start working on a play, Lee, what edition of Shakespeare would you go to? I, I'm not very precious when it comes to the folio. I would look at various versions. The edition that I like using, I find it very comfortable. I, I exchange my Riverside for a Norton, but look at various ones. Sometimes, again, if we have sometimes like a version that uses one word and another that uses a different one, if they don't change the meter, use the one that, that, that informs the image better. Shakespeare dead he's been dead for a while <laughs> he's not gonna care pure and, and being like very like the purists of using this over that and i'm like mm, what serves the action better right what's that what sounds better i'm not precious when it comes to editing because sometimes we have to 
so there's not a particular version of like, oh, use these. You look at a bunch and see if what works better for you or what works better with the the intention of of the production. I mean, when no one when we do Hamlet, we're not none of us is doing Hamlet the way Shakespeare did. None of us. Because we don't know which version was actually on stage. We have like the two ex- distinct versions between Folio and Quarto. We have the the bad Quarto that even I've I've heard productions of the bad Quarto. I was like, why? <laughs> it's bad. What can you possibly do? It's just doing it to be different. I feel I don't understand why I do that. So compare versions. Look at different things. See what serves the action better. I would say. A good Shakespearean actor needs to read about the time the play was written and like what was going on around Shakespeare because he was writing for a very specific group of people in a very specific point in time in a very specific location. It's like if you if you're doing Henry V and you're playing the chorus, you need to know something about the Irish Rebellion that was going on at the time because there are lines that reference it. There's a line that references the Earl of Essex attempt to quiet down the the Irish Rebellion. If you don't know that, that line you're going to say is either going well, you're probably going to cut it or you're just not going to make sense of it. So understanding what the, his environment that he was working in. There's a wonderful wonderful book by Ian Mortimer called the Time Traveler's Guide to Elizabethan England that really paints a very vivid picture of what life looked like. What was around Shakespeare when he was writing these things in terms of what, like, what did the people do? What did their day look like? What would their clothes look like? It's, it's a short one, too. It's like 200 pages, and it's it's wonderful. Well, Lee, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for, for coming on the program and spending so much time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Oh, Lee, this is great. And it's just <laughs> such a joy to hear you and to see that you're doing so well. And I, I can't be more happy. Thank you. I'm Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.